You know how sometimes you're on social media and your friends who know you really well and they mean so well, they link you to a news story or a meme or something that they think you're going to like. And then someone else does that. And then someone else does it too. And no one's like checking whether or not this thing has already been posted. That happened to me in the past week. Uh, thank you to everyone who told me that She-Ra is now at Universal Orlando. I do sincerely appreciate the news, even though I was given it like 12 times, because she looks beautiful, and I want her autograph, and to hold her sword, and to meet her. Lauren's really putting her friends on blast. I got to say, no one told me about this. I found out through Facebook like a goddamn American. Um, yeah, so she was walking around the Universal Islands of Adventure in Orlando right now, which is awesome. Yeah, the costume is incredible, and I think it's so cool that she is being represented. I think we should put your friends on blast that they didn't tell you. <laughs> Everyone's always telling you about transformers stuff and bruce springsteen stuff yeah that's pretty much exactly the list of things people know to alert me to transformers <laughs> bruce springsteen and if anything happens in the world of like magic the gathering that is outside like that takes on like a cultural significance beyond the game they let me know about that too uh like the netflix series like five people told me about that uh so there yeah okay maybe my friends should go on blast I want to say, I may have told this story on the show before. When I was like five, I met a costumed He-Man. Did you know that? My parents took me to a Toys R Us opening in Davenport, Iowa, and there was a gentleman there dressed as He-Man, but it was 1990, so it was the new adventures of He-Man, He-Man, oh. all sci-fi. I don't think I realized that the 90s show took off enough that that could even be a thing. It was on for about two seasons, uh, and they were promoting a new toy line, and the only thing I had to say to this person was, where's She-Ra? And his response was, she's back home on Eternia. So, like, props to him that he knew the word Eternia, but he didn't know that she was from Etheria, he man. <laughs> We just keep getting San Diego Comic-Con news. The closer the convention comes, the more She-Ra goodies get announced. Uh, we already told you guys about the two-pack of action figures, but as it turns out, Mattel is launching an entire first wave of She-Ra figures that are going to be available to all of us at Target. Take all my money. We've so far, as of recording, seen Adora, and we've seen Bo. But we actually uh, found the designer of the toys on Instagram, and she said uh, that, quote, all of the major ships will be covered. So who do we think is going to be in this first wave? I mean, you got to have Seahawk. Probably <laughs> Number one toy favorite for everyone. Catra, Scorpio. Well, you're talking ships. Like, that's the word that comes to mind immediately. <laughs> that, a different kind of ship, I guess. Yeah. Both ships. <laughs> all kinds of ships. Catra, Scorpia. Uh, our friend Jacob asked me, based on last week's podcast, whose hair are you most excited to brush? And the <laughs> obvious answer is Entrapta. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think probably, yeah, probably all the princesses. For at least Perfumum or Mist. Uh, at at a, least those two. A Seahawk. A G. You're making a G in the air. <laughs> our unintroduced guest has <laughs> made a sign of a G. For G-Force, the <laughs> Titans villain, obviously included. Just, what do you say? 
Glimmer. Oh, Glimmer. Oh, yeah, like, Glimmer. Absolutely. my feelings. I'm like, Glimmer. No, I just, I had already written that <laughs> off because I had said all of the princesses. So I was like, who else is there? But even Scorpio as a princess. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't mention Shadow Weaver, who was in the two-pack last week. So pretty sick. I would actually call these dolls because they're very doll-like, which I like. I remember uh, my dad would always try to, like, minimize the things I like, like my action figures by saying, why are you playing with dolls? Which it's like, first of all, Dad, this is a truck that turns into a robot. <laughs> but also it's like, who cares, right? Like, let let boys have their dolls. Like, I don't know if I'm going to buy these because... I don't know that I have room for a new toy line in my life, but I love that they exist and they're very cool. Yeah, I was just excited to see Bo especially seeing his smile and they went full crop top and he's got some muscle definition. But it's also just a well-made doll of a character of color. Thank goodness. Right. It's not like the Barbie line where it took till like the 90s to have a black Ken. Uh, also San Diego News, they announced a panel... The She-Ra crew is doing a panel on Friday morning. I think it's at 11 a.m. And it is um, Noelle Stevenson as well as the primary voice cast. So Amy Carrero, um, Karen Fukuhara, Marcus Scribner, and I think Lauren Ash should be pretty cool. Uh, I don't think Lauren and I are going to make it, which is really heartbreaking. But San Diego is, is far and expensive. And we keep sending each other every day new toy announcements from the show. Uh, so not only is the She-Ra stuff going to be there, but uh, Jeff Goldblum action figure yes. from Thor is going to be an exclusive. And I'm like, mm, might fly out there for that Goldblum daddy figure, though. And the, Shoot. they just announced a, a set of Transformers trading card game exclusives with the retro 80s art of Soundwave and Blaster, which I'm so stoked on. I love that game. But then Lauren and I also realized that, like, we're talking about spending a lot of money to go somewhere and spend a lot of money. I feel <laughs> that way even about C2E2 Pretty, these days. Yeah. C2E2 to me, as much as I love it, I only go if I can go for free because it just feels to me like spending money to be let into a giant store. And when I went two years ago, I had a couple of beers and then bought like way too much art. Mm -hmm. And so the more affordable I can make these experiences, the better. And the thing is, like, I can get a free ticket to San Diego through work connections. But like you have to get there, you know, and you have to be in San Diego during Comic-Con. So I guess what I'm saying is that even though we're progressive, we're also like terrible capitalists at the core. Give me, give me, give me cool toys and stuff. Complain about the material items that I can't have <laughs> on my podcast. That's the thing that blows my mind, though, honestly, is the fact that people think, like, because they can't have something, there shouldn't be exclusives. This was, like, a big row in the Transformers trading card game Facebook group today, is that there shouldn't be San Diego exclusives because not everyone can have them. It's like, guys, you won't, your life isn't over because you can't have a retro Soundwave card. It's actually okay. And they'll be on eBay. Yes, also true. But that also brings up problems of access and finance. Anyway, that's not what this episode's about. No, we're going to talk about our favorite character, Shadow Weaver. Today's episode is about Light Spinner. And I get the feeling we're going to fight because, as I started to say off mic, Shadow Weaver is the type of character that I sympathize with in a big way when I'm absolutely not supposed to. The, like, entitled to power, entitled to decision-making agency. Uh, so Scar and Daenerys Targaryen, they're all my favorites, and I'm a huge sympathizer. 
And I think Eric's gonna maybe disagree with me a little bit. I'm just channeling Trin, man. You got to think about you got to think about uh, what Trin would say. What WWTS? What would Trin say? Another big aspect of this episode is uh, who influences us as we grow up, and how, and why, and the good things that can mean for children, as well as the bad ones. And when we were trying to unbox who might be a great person to talk about, I thought of my friend Shannon. Uh, Shannon is a nanny. Please welcome Shannon Camp. Yay! Hello! Uh, I'm the silent person who was trying <laughs> yeah. to say glimmer with sign language earlier. <laughs> sign, uh, sign language just drawing in the air, the, the letters? Cool. Uh, so <laughs> well, that's, Speaking of putting shade on your friends. <laughs> putting my friends on blast. We're going to cut that out. Yep. Mm. Maybe not. <laughs> thank you for being here, Shannon. I appreciate you very much, and I forgot about Glimmer, so I thank you for the reminder. I can't wait to see what her hair looks like as a doll. I want to know how they're going to make it defy gravity the way that it does, <laughs> and I say that with so much love. It was really hard to stay quiet while you guys were talking just because I had like so many little things I wanted to chime in, and I think I can tie it all together because uh, I actually watched this episode with the kids that I nanny. Ooh. Um, it's uh, three boys and one girl, and they all love this show. Uh, we also really love like the new Carmen San Diego reboot and things like that. And I think that some of the barriers, um, cultural barriers of the past, you know, between what's for boys and what's for girls with the younger generation, like I truly see them falling away in the way that they didn't even with us as, you know, more progressive uh, millennial kids. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I definitely had the quote-unquote boy toys when I was a kid. My parents had no problem getting me my Johnny Quest action figures and my Earthworm Jam action figures. Uh, but they still were very conscious of the fact that they were walking into the boy aisle to get me those things. And it's just wonderful to see some of those barriers coming down because a toy is a toy is a toy. And any character can be a hero to anybody. So let me let me ask you about that. How do you feel about the fact that ostensibly the only She-Ra toy line, maybe, we don't know, but this, the primary She-Ra toy line is, is um, more girl-coded in doll form. Does that... Do you feel like that is a missed opportunity to put She-Ra in the action space? Or do you feel like that's a way to let boys come into the, the doll space? Yeah, well, I assume that boys don't want to play with dolls equally as much as girls do. Uh, I don't really see a hard divide between kids who like to play with action figures and kids who like to play with dolls. I found in my experience that the same kids who like army action figures like to play house with baby dolls, like to play uh, those calico critters, you know, those little animals that are wearing the tiny outfits that are simply the cutest thing in the world. And there's so much great stuff like Playmobil and Lego that I feel is becoming less and less gendered as time goes on. But more than the toys, I just... It's really encouraging me to see these little boys who are only four and seven years old uh, looking up to female characters, wanting them to be in our games, thinking they're cool and impressive. Like Captain Phasma is the Star Wars character to beat in their house. Wow. It's all about Captain Phasma. She was the only character they wanted included in their Star Wars games when we started playing. 
get out of here. Yeah. Let's give her more to do in episode nine, huh? She's dead. <laughs> uh, well, it's Star Wars. <laughs> That's true. Darth Maul got caught, got cut literally in half and continues to be in every cartoon and film. So. I mean, Emperor Palpatine is coming back. So, yeah, we could drag Captain Phasma up from the fiery depths. But I was just thinking of her when Lauren was talking about some of those other characters who I actually think are more sympathetic than Captain Phasma. But I just like that we're in this phase now where we can have these really badass women or just bad women and have them be embraced by culture at large. Absolutely. Uh, so with that, why don't we get into today's episode? So yeah, we, tell us what happened. We are covering Light Spinner, which is kind of this, uh, it's She-Ra and the Princesses of Power's kind of take on the classic episode, The Price of Power, which is something Lauren and I have talked about a lot. We covered it with our friend Jacob in season two of this show. So this is the Shadow Weaver origin, but it's a little different than last time. So in this version, Shadow Weaver is a uh, already a teacher on kind of the, the it's Mysticor, right? The, the like yeah. Isle of Magicians. And um, kind of her prize student is Micah, who we know is Glimmer's father. Uh, Micah has a bit of the original Shadow Weaver plot where he is a little overly ambitious with the magic he wants to do. Not in a conniving way, but he craves more than the slow pace at which he's being taught. And Shadow Weaver, I th- or her name is Lightspinner at the time, obviously. Lightspinner recognizes a kind of kindred soul in him and promises to... Uh, help him increase his power if he will help her with a ritual because this is all happening roughly concurrently with the Horde's invasion of Etheria. Uh, Lightspinner has found no quarter in trying to uh, petition the Council of Mysticor to do anything. They're all kind of sit-on-my-hand pacifists. And so she has decided that she will cast this ritual to gain power and do something about the Horde, and she has enlisted Micah to help. Well, Micah does help, but he gets kind of freaked out about halfway through because the ritual involves like summoning like this like black diamond with a bunch of like weird hands coming out of it, and it's very creepy and grabby. And he runs away, and the the summoning gets light spinner and envelops her in shadow, and essentially Shadow Weaver is born. Uh, Norwin, who was Shadow Weaver's teacher in the original Price of Power, uh, finds this, uh, casts her out. And where does she go but to the Fright Zone to offer Hordak her fealty uh, and a chance at victory? So basically most of this episode is told in flashback. There's some present-day action that's probably the most compelling part uh, with Catra being told by Hordak that she has to ship Shadow Weaver off to Beast Island. Another nice retro reference. And Catra trying weirdly to resist uh, doing that because she wants Shadow Weaver around. And she says it's for tactical reasons, but we learn it's because she wants the reconciliation with her mother figure. And they almost have that at episode's end. But in a cruel twist, Shadow Weaver uses honesty to break Catra's heart even more than Lies ever did and uses her to escape the Fright Zone. And uh, Catra is left with no prisoner and uh, feeling even more betrayed than ever. So... This raises one of my major questions about this episode, and it is how much of Shadow Weaver's actions are premeditated and how many are sort of her being tempted in a moment. I think she has a lot of base, real dark character flaws. I think she must be right. She must see her agenda pushed forward. She feels a great sense of entitlement. 
But some of the chronology I was trying to watch really closely. And to this moment, I'm still struggling to figure out really when Shadow Weaver or Light Spinner at the time decides to kind of give Micah the extra training. It really seems like she's keeping him in line and she's keeping him on pace and she's restricting him like she's supposed to until she really realizes the power that he has. And she almost becomes, in my opinion, tempted to like, well, actually, maybe I can get something out of this. And when you say she agreed to train him in exchange for doing this ritual, I'm not sure it was so literal I I really found myself seeing it as like a a little step and then a little step further and a little step further and incident after incident after incident pushing her a little bit further at a time and her making incremental decisions toward this snap. It wasn't to me one big exchange. It was very Daenerys Targaryen, I think, which is another loss and another loss and another loss until finally that character loses it um but we all know i have opinions about daenerys obviously i'm not someone with as much familiarity in the world of this show as you guys as a disclaimer for your lovely listeners please be patient with little old me uh but based on what i saw this episode i definitely didn't get the impression that when light spinner first agreed to train micah that she had like this far-reaching ulterior motive and grand plan I felt like I was watching, I was trying to listen very closely to what the voice actor was doing because of the entire bottom half of her face being covered. You almost have to rely on the voice actor's intentions more than you would with certain other characters. And I just loved the detail and precision of the way they animate the top part of her face once she's in her shadow weaver mask. Yeah, Lorraine Toussaint does so much work in this episode. She's so wonderful. I I guess it could go either way because, and I think here's the core of maybe our disagreement. I think, and yes, Shadow Weaver is my favorite character. I think Light Spinner is always a villain. Or rather, I think that her flaws would put her on the path to villainy regardless of what happens. Because how angry is she when Micah, like, is better at at his magic than she thinks he should be while training him. Like that's the sign of almost like a narcissist of like someone who can't bear to see someone else have more power. Uh, But the most telling thing to me is that immediately as soon as Norwin casts her out, she goes to Hordak like her, her argument for the whole episode is we have to do something about the horde invading, which is true. And like Norwin's pacifism, it's almost like, I mean, I, I hate to pick on her, but I was reminded again today, it's almost like this Pelosi, like, well, we're going to go high and we're going to be happy with what we have and just do, you know, we're going to all live in harmony and it is what it is. And that's obviously ineffective. Norwin is not right here, but immediately she goes to the horde. That is fair. And before we move forward with this, because it's going to be this for a while, I think I would like to pull up our fan letter. All right. Uh, when we get fan mail, most of the time Eric answers it just because I think he is generally more present and available to do that. What but are you trying to say? I don't have anything going on. 
I think your job is just probably nicer to how you spend your time while you're there. That's probably true. Uh, so we received a letter from one Megan Rush. Thank you, Megan. And I had to respond to this one because the title of this message was Powerful Woman Going Insane. And it came just at the end of the Game of Thrones finale. And so skipping ahead in the letter, because I already mentioned Daenerys, uh, Megan says, the most recent example of this trope is Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. Men find it easier to take the scapegoat route with women going into power instead of giving credit that women can be in power and not go insane with power. Why can't we have a strong woman show real emotion? And then in parentheses, that is not to be confused with weakness or insanity or craziness that later becomes a leader of a nation. We villainize these women. We mistake anger for madness. We reward unworthy men with a leadership role that they don't deserve. Daenerys was sold into slavery, raped, beaten, had her children die, her husband die, and had a nation of people despise her simply because of her family, and we call her insane. Uh, There's a little bit of shadow weaver there that I'll get to in a minute. But uh, I also want to bring up that Megan wrote to us about Mara. And we got to this in a previous episode of this podcast, and I'm so stoked that she commented on it. Something had to happen to cause Mara to quote-unquote snap. She's, uh, Megan's really hoping that season three goes into the Mara backstory because she says she's tired of the whole, quote, she went insane arc. Megan says, it is 2019. Why are we still doing any women can't have power because they will go insane type of story? And Mara is brought into this episode too. And the recent season three poster that was just released definitely has Mara in the background. So we know we're going there. I completely agree with Megan, and that was a wonderful letter. Uh, I think I would be way more, I don't know if nervous is the right word, or uh, reticent to accept the whole woman going insane with power storyline that's in this episode if this were a show that was primarily written and crafted by men. Uh, but even though I haven't seen much of She-Ra, I'm a huge Noelle Stevenson fan from Nimona and Lumberjanes and stuff. And I trust her and the team behind this show, based on what I've seen, to have something larger at play. Well, something you said earlier is that you like that we're at a place where we can not only have badass women, but also bad women. And I, Shadow Heck Weaver yeah. is a bad – like, I think she's bad and I think she's super compelling – but I don't – like, I guess the question is, do you feel that this is an example of a woman going insane with power? I think Shadow Weaver was already kind of there, and the power just came as a result of her proclivities. Well, I don't think you're wrong with your point that at some point this is how it was going to shake out with Light Spinner. Um, the strongest evidence there for me is I think what you already said – where Micah shows power and she snaps. Who else have you been training with? Ah. You know, she's got this anger and this venom already that maybe it would have taken longer in her life. Maybe it would have been something different. But I think it's pretty clear that her tragic flaw was going to take her at some point. It's very, you know, Greek tragedy. 
And this was the case of the original Shadow Weaver too. That her her flaw was that she craved power at any cost. So it like political allegiances don't necessarily matter, which probably explains why she went so quickly went to Hordak. My mom always says that I make a good nanny because I like being in charge. I don't like having a boss. Yeah, I'm uh, that way too. <laughs> I mean, obviously the children's parents are my employers and I completely respect them and I follow their instructions. But as a nanny, I'm the one who gets to decide what we're going to do every day and, you know, how we're going to do it. I kind of sympathized with Light Spinner in that respect. Like, she, when she is in control, she shines. It's only when uh, that goat man, what's his name? Norwin. I hope Goatman isn't a slur in this universe. (laughs) (laughs) When uh, Norwin comes in, like, that to me was one of the things that triggered, like, her nasty side towards the students or towards the other uh, magicians, warlocks, wizards there. I'm really just running through the gamut of fantasy words. (laughs) It's something in there. I'm saying I found that quality relatable. I think that sometimes people who work well with children are good at it because they really relish that leadership role. And I think that's a really good point. I think we can see where maybe some of Light Spinner's uh, worst traits are encouraged by having a, a so-called leader who um, doesn't really listen to people and is is almost like this anachronistic in this anachronistic seat of power, but hasn't earned it. He's the man that Megan was talking about in her letter. Like, what does Norwin actually do besides say the horde isn't a big deal, which like clearly they are. So you wrong, Norwin. Yeah. So I want to tread lightly because from a political perspective, one of the things I hate the most is when you hear like an alt-right or white supremacist person say something like, well, if you keep calling me a Nazi, I might as well just be a Nazi. Like if you have... If you have those tendencies and those beliefs, no one else is forcing them on you or pushing you into them. That's all you. But I will say there are relatable struggles that Shadow Weaver is going through because her fundamental understanding of this world is different than other people. I took note of the fact that she says magic is everywhere and she seems to resent the princesses and their sort of gem elemental form of magic because she thinks if you're strong enough and you're smart enough you don't need that stuff and she maybe isn't wrong and to your point Norwin is basically saying he's chill with getting wiped out and she knows that the Horde is going to take over the entire world if they don't do something. And how terrible must it be to feel like you're the only person in the room who is literally trying to survive and has an argument to live, just base level, not get wiped out and, and pop and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Occupied. You're, you're trying to not get occupied And the people who are in charge of you and you're supposed to admire and trust say they don't believe you or they don't care. Well, and we saw in season one, Mysticor doesn't care still. Like, they're high above everything, literally. Right? Like, talk about Ivory Tower. None of the concerns of the rest of Etheria really bother them. And I think that's very telling as well. Her turn was so abrupt after she and Micah did the ritual and then it went wrong and it overtook her. That, again, as someone who does not understand, have understanding of the entirety of this universe, I didn't really see her as going insane. I saw her as being possessed. 
That is a question that I wrote down. Her eyes change, and I found myself wondering in this watch through if there was something else inside of her. That's a great point. And maybe they're both in there now, or maybe she's gone. I think they're probably sort of both in there. That was exactly what I thought, but I didn't, when you guys were talking about like, oh, her motives of this and that, I was like, didn't a bunch of black goo hands steal her brain? <laughs> it's possible. Maybe. And when you see. When you see those hands grabbing at her, I was paying very close attention, and she tries to deflect them. She tries to fight them off. Yeah. And there's something really suspicious and scary about the fact that once that's all in her, suddenly she respects it, and she's mad at anyone who tried to stop it. Yeah, there might be an extra being in there. I think something that supports the argument for there being something else in there, but also supports the argument for her having truly turned to the dark side, um, is the moment that she touches Micah's face with affection, at least what I interpreted as affection, before she disappears. I think that is a moment that you could use to make either of those cases. I also, I, I kind of was more on the possession train until she said uh, it worked, the spell worked. So I think at least that that argues for like both possession and some piece of herself kind of like the Micah moment that also sets up what we see in this episode that she has a penchant for taking children and uh, and having weird emotional relationships with them we talked a lot on this show about the power of physical touch and how Shadow Weaver and then through Shadow Weaver Katra they just really know how to weaponize affectionate touch and turn those into emotional manipulative moments. And you said the word compelling already. The relationship between Katra and Shadow Weaver in this episode is one of the most interesting parts of the story. Yeah. There's so much. Uh, we should shout out friend of the pod, Catherine Nolfi, who wrote this episode. I think there's a lot of depth here, and I don't think we're going to come to any set conclusions about what we just saw, which I think is a really good sign. As I watched the episode, um, I was really struck by Adora and Shadow Weaver versus Ketra and Shadow Weaver. And obviously, Adora was not in this episode very much, but I was at Lauren and Eric's live show, Be Jealous. So I saw the first two episodes of the first season, and I felt like I had a decent handle on her character and her basic backstory. The relationship between Shadow Weaver and Adora made me think more of a parent-child relationship. You know, she's adopted as a baby, and even though Adora has power that Shadow Weaver herself doesn't possess... Shadow Weaver gets to take a little bit of the credit if Adora grows up and becomes an amazing, you know, horde soldier because she taught her everything she knows. Um, whereas I felt like the relationship between Shadow Weaver and Ketra was more of like the nanny or teacher student relationship uh, because it it has that element of competitiveness. And I don't want to say that I'm competitive with the kids I nanny because then I would not be a good nanny. But there is like that feeling of, you know, you work to help them accomplish all these things and they might even supersede you in the field that you're helping them in. And because you are not their parent, you don't get to really share in any of the glory or anything like that. So 
I could kind of understand why there might be more friction in the Ketra Shadow Weaver relationship. I just felt from their relationship like that competitiveness. Just to give like a real world example, uh, the oldest boy who I nanny, who's 14, absolutely excels in the field of musical theater. He's a true triple threat, like acting, singing, dancing. He can do it all. Um, And as an actor myself, you know, there were times when he would ask me to prepare him for auditions and stuff. And eventually it's like, I'm like, what am I doing here? You should be teaching me. And even though I'm so happy for him and proud of him, there is that feeling of like, well, you know, you've superseded me in this arena. Well, the favoritism and the competitiveness are overarching themes, especially in our Horde characters. So... First of all, there's a line near the end of this episode that I just thought was like a devastating blow to Catra's jaw. And it's when Shadow Weaver says, how did you let this happen? Mm. Um, and it's it's Shadow Weaver almost making it personal. Like, you learned from me and I'm amazing. So how could you fail in this way? It's like I failed and you've hurt me too. But what makes it even more hurtful is it wasn't delivered in an accusatory no. tone. She also has that line, I believe it's to catch her, where she says, you're like me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that really, really struck me. I think that it's so much easier to be harder on someone, especially a child, I'm sorry to say, who reminds us of ourselves. Well, the wild thing about that is the circumstance that Catra's in, where she always feels like she's second fiddle to Adora, was created by Shadow Weaver, and we see it created in this episode. Shadow Weaver sees baby Adora and says, she has power, this one is different, and becomes obsessed with Adora over all of her other children in that moment. And so the abused traits that Catcher is showing are literally, I think, because of Shadow Weaver. But I, I think in a way the whole thesis of the episode is that Catra and Shadow Weaver are super similar because we see them in their younger days in almost parallel situations with parallel dialogue. I think they both have a line like, you know, you were uh, I was I was your favorite and now I'm slipping or something like that. Like they both have lost favor with the person that they saw as their road to power and now they're both trying to claw their way out from that. And I think that is fascinating. But what I think is so great about the Ketra Shadow Weaver dynamic is that Shadow Weaver, you know, has this almost like it's almost like a come to Jesus moment for the two, right? Where there's finally connecting on an emotional level and Catra finally gets some kind of satisfaction from her mother figure. And we almost, I at least I almost believed it for a second. I almost believe where Shadow Weaver was saying that stuff about I was hard on you because I wanted you to be better than me because we're so alike. Because like part of that is true, but then we get to the flashback, and you see that that is still a lie. Like obviously, Adora's the favorite. Catra was never the favorite. Shadow Weaver's hard on Catra because she's kind of mean to people. Right? Like that's what I took from that. Is like she tells half of a truth to twist that knife even more. Well, two points. One, I think Shadow Weaver can think she's telling the truth, but because she has a very toxic and very damaging point of view, she's wrong. I mean, maybe she's even lying to herself about the childhood that she gave to Catra. But here's that chronology thing again. At the end of the episode, Shadow Weaver gets her sorcerer's badge back and uses it to escape. 
but she doesn't know that she has it. She doesn't find it buried in her food until after that exchange. And that, I think, is so meaningful. She very well could have said all of those things to Katra, having no idea if she was getting out tonight or never. And just like the flashback portions with Micah, that's why I really question what of her is premeditated and what of her is just, in the end, Shadow Weaver's her own number one. She plants seeds in case she can use them later and then jumps at opportunities to get power or be self-serving. She doesn't know she's going to escape until after Catra leaves that scene. See, my thought was that she knew Catra would figure out something. I think she trusts in Catra's abilities enough to concoct something if she gives Catra this one – we both are crazy ex-girlfriend fans. What do they call it? Like a, a love nugget or something? Love kernel. A love kernel. She gives Catra a love kernel, and she knows that that will be enough for Catra to do something to for her. To come through, yeah. Yeah. I just think some of it is genuine, and that's what makes it so potent Yeah, is – it's half true. It's always half true. Um, Shadow Weaver is simultaneously someone who, at least in her own mind, sort of in a, a Thanos sort of way, loves these children and is their, the source of their trauma. He gives me love kernels, each little crumb another tasty clue. If you read between the lines, he's saying, I love you. Love, kernels. Okay, can we talk about the flashback for a second? I have to nerd out about this. Go for it. I feel strongly that this flashback is the closest yet we've gotten to any of the classic Shira mythology, the Masters of the Universe kind of stuff. Okay, so my big question in, in the series now is what is Hordak looking for? Because we cut to a scene in the Fright Zone shortly after Shadow Weaver joins up, and Hordak says the line... Or Shadow Weaver asks cryptically, how did it go? And Hordak says, I arrived too late. I found something, but it's useless. Put it with the other orphans. So the it is Adora. What? So he was on Eternia, probably. What is he looking for? Is he looking for Adam? And he finds... So I don't think he knows who the Twins of Power are, or else he wouldn't think Adora is useless. But I think Shadow Weaver obviously knows that Adora is somebody. So is he looking for Adam or is he looking for something else? Like Grayskull, the sorceress? I have no idea. But there's something here that connects to my 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 show. There's something here. What is it? <laughs> and we saw another Masters of the Universe character, right? Uh, Grizzlor. Grizzlor is in that scene, which is like a nice little wink. No, Grizz and who's Grizzlor with, though? He's with like a... That's a new person, oh, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah. I thought it was like maybe another one of those generals. Mm-mm. Definitely Grizzlor. But though. it's... Oh, what is what is he looking for? I have to know. I have to know what Hordak wanted and why Adora wasn't, wasn't it. Well, I'm not sure where that scene is placed on the timeline either. Is this already when Hordak is stranded or is this before then? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause like clearly now Hordak's ultimate plan seems to be to get off Etheria, but at the time, yeah, is he jumping because he thinks it will help him escape or is he jumping because he thinks it will get him power? I don't know, who knows? Big question marks. Catherine, do you want to tell us now? You didn't want to tell us when I interviewed you. Maybe now you'll tell us. Hit me up. Maybe we just yelled enough that now we get to all the spoilers. <laughs> I'm just so passionate. This like 30-second flashback like had my head spinning when I saw it. 
Okay, I'm good. Cool. All of the characters that I sympathize with, um, the common thread between them is that they're maybe getting what they deserve or they're angry because they're not getting what they deserve. And this episode really made me reflect politically on, um, unfortunately, what's going on on the border right now between U.S. and Mexico. Um, there's so much in this episode of she about the way you're treated as a child and the influences that you experience as a child and how they might affect you for the rest of your life. And I couldn't help but think all of these immigrant children, you know, whether or not you want to argue that a, a, a law was broken, P.S., they're not criminals. What are we doing to the adults that they're going to be? What are those kids going to think about America, about what we owe each other? And um, how, how are these real kids going to turn out? Uh, and Shira showing these horde kids grow up, I think is intentionally or not making a really strong case for being better to our young people and being more empathetic to what those young people are going through. So first of all, nice, good place reference. It was, what it was, you found it. Um, I did, uh, this is not the point of your statement, but I want to clear this up because I think it's one of the most misunderstood things. Um, even the adults who are crossing over are not, like crossing into America illegally is a civil crime. It's like speeding, okay? So all these idiots who are like, oh, well, they deserve it. Okay, so next time you drive 10 miles over the speed limit, we're going to put you in a fucking concentration camp. We're going to give you the death penalty. Right. And like, your child, too. Right, we're exactly. We're going to separate you two and not give you a toothbrush and not give you a, a bed to sleep on because you broke the law. Show me one person who hasn't committed, a, who hasn't jaywalked or sped or littered, you know? Like, that's that's the level of crime that we're talking about here. And seeking, Just to asylum, be clear, seeking asylum is not a crime it's, at all. No, it's not at all. But even if, even if they're just trying to, like, sneak into the country not for asylum reasons, it's a civil crime. I just think we're so concerned as a nation about quote-unquote terrorism and quote-unquote protecting ourselves. And this is the type of thing that, frankly, can radicalize people and turn them against the nation that did, in fact, abuse them. Yeah. Earlier in the show, you guys were talking about, and I swear I'm going somewhere with this, exclusive toys to Comic-Cons and how there are adult people on Facebook complaining that it's not fair because not everyone gets access to them. That, to me, feels like a good snapshot of the political moment we are living in, where adults are clinging to this bizarre, naive, childish belief that everything better be exactly fair and you better do what exactly right and pay like exactly my rules so everything can be equal or you're not doing it right and it's wrong and not fair. Like, what? Do they think they're getting cheated out of if these – I mean, I know what they think they're getting cheated out of if these people come over. But it's that same idea to me of like, well, I demand that the world be perfectly fair and balanced even though it obviously cannot be. And you have to realize that these people are coming from circumstances that will never be fair and balanced with yours. 
Right. I was having a conversation with a colleague earlier today, and he was giving me this really idealistic, like, kind of stale, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, like whether we're talking about people in poverty on the south side of Chicago or people coming from poverty from Mexico. He was very much like, well, you know, at some point you just have to have ambition and you have to have the right heroes and you have to have the right ethics. And uh, he really seemed to believe that like just a change in attitude and everyone could work in the American system and buck up and pull themselves up. And like whether we're talking about segregation in our own city or whether we're talking about these people trying to come to America not everyone starts with the same amount of tools and the same amount of opportunity. And I think the idea that America is somehow one pie and if we give away some of the tools and some of the opportunity, then there will be less for us. That's just a fallacy. In my opinion, which I think is backed up by some pretty significant studies, immigrants boost the economy and diversity helps us all. And I think there's plenty of physical space and there's plenty of money in the country and in our cities and everywhere that these people aren't causing a problem. It's a manufactured crisis. And um, I actually have, this is related, I have $800 of Wayfair furniture in my cart right now online because I'm moving. And Wayfair was uh, exposed for having provided $200,000 worth of beds to the camps. And Wayfair's employees walked out uh, yesterday, the day before we were recording, to protest and say, please donate that money. Don't profit off of these camps. And people are online, right? The main anti-Wayfair walkout tweets that I'm seeing are like, what, you want these kids to sleep on the concrete floor? You don't want kids to have beds? And it implies that the camps are needed, that there's like they're like a necessary thing that we're doing to criminals that need to be housed in this way. It's like, no, okay. For one, the people from Wayfair don't want to take the beds away. They just don't want to profit off of these beds. And for two... They're, they're not anti-kids sleeping in beds. They're anti-freaking concentration camp. And I'm really frightened this week by the rhetoric that's going around that sounds an awful lot like, well, we just can't help it. We have to have these camps. No, we don't. But even if – I'm sorry. Even if illegal – uh, immigration didn't help the economy, which it does, because guess what? People who falsify social security numbers pay into a system that doesn't benefit them at all. Just so you guys know, even if it didn't help anything, what we're doing is horrible. It's wrong. I like I don't care about the bottom line. I don't care if it's wrong. Like we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, that Full goes stop. back to our interview with Noelle Stevenson herself so long ago that some atrocities so long ago. are just atrocities. And at some point... Hordak is Hordak, and evil is evil, and it doesn't matter who's getting more or less of the pie. Some things just have to be wrong. To love, cast down all evil. So, in lighter news, there was about 30 seconds of Rebels in this episode, uh, but kind of a tantalizing cliffhanger. So, Bo is playing with his, like, 
iPad like translation thingy. Oh yeah. And uh, in the end, him glimmer and Adora decode this message in first one's language that says Serenia Portal Mara. Now, obviously, we know what Portal and Mara means. Lauren, do you know what Serenia is? Is it a reference I'm supposed to know? I don't know if you're supposed to know it. I just looked it up today because the first time I watched the season, I didn't think that it would be anything. But then I thought, what if? So I did a little Google uh, on the Grayskull Wiki. So Serenia is a throwaway reference from one episode of the original She-Ra. It is the center of balance in Etheria. And if Serenia goes too light or dark, the whole planet will be thrown off balance. It is also the home of Madame Raz, 600 years prior to the start of She-Ra, Princess of Power. Oh, Raz. So that was from a season two episode whose name is escaping me. But the fact that they're using a name that exists in the mythos probably means something. I think it definitely feeds into all of the theories that we feel so strongly about that Mara did something, if not clear-headed, then definitely intentional to protect the rest of the universe from Hordak. And I bet we see Madame Raz again. Yeah, in the next season. Okay, so what a fun, deep talk this was. Uh, Let's thank Shannon for being here. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Shannon, if our listeners want to get a hold of you or see some of your work, because in addition to being a nanny, you're also an artist. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, I am an actor and a writer of various things, including podcasts and children's theater. So this was really fun to get to dabble around in something a little bit different. Um, If you'd like to hear more of my work, you can visit shannon-camp.com, spelled like my last name, C-A-M-P-E. Or you can check out my latest project, which is a modernization of Little Women that will be premiering as an audio drama this fall. And you can find that on Instagram at Little Women Podcast. I'm really excited. I've definitely learned that the next time I want to work on something – I need to find someone else to be in charge with me because I may not like being the only one who's in charge. See, I'm totally the opposite. I really hate working with other people. Like, I can't stand it. Like, if you told me I was going to do a podcast with anybody else on a regular basis, I'd be like, ugh. You told me just a couple of days ago that you like me more now that we work together regularly. And I find that shocking for both of our personalities. Lauren, don't spill my niceness online. That's not your story to tell. And cut. Listen to your Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.